all I know is that if trying to free the locust god is anything like trying to free the uh, scorpion god was at uh, GP Vegas, I want nothing to do with it. <laughs> oh, yeah, I saw there were some troubles with uh, some technical difficulties with freeing various things at the uh, GP. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if you saw that video or not, but when we did that, the mechanism that was meant to actually pull the sand down to reveal the card, instead of pulling the sand down because the sand was basically like concrete at that point, it actually tore the mechanism off of the the setup and flung this gigantic box full of like bolts and sharp <laughs> oh, no. edges straight at our faces. Hopefully and no one was hurt. Well, yeah, because we were uh, four guys pulling in four separate directions, which means physics meant that the uh, box of bolts went straight back instead of straight into our faces. So we got very lucky, but it was also horrifying, which I guess is the whole point of uh, Hour of Devastation, right? It's like we definitely got devastated. That was a good time for everybody. That's true. All your carefully wrought plans go to ruin in Hour of Devastation. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, basically. Oh, man. You can't be weak and uh, do anything related to wizards. you got to be strong. Your face has to be made of armor to resist sharp-edged bolts. Say, say a scarab's face. I'm Phil DeLuca. And I'm Shivam Putt. <laughs> and we are Commanderin. Thanks for listening, everybody. Sean Watson has had to deal with something personally that came up all of a sudden. So turns out his house was invaded by a bunch of scarabs, and (laughs) he's currently trying to scry really, really badly. (laughs) So we put a spotlight on community issues, but never ever talk about four banned topics. And our guest will have to pay rigid attention to this: religion. Politics, Hearthstone, and hip-hop. So no sudden outbreaks of hip-hop, no rapping, nothing like that. No no singing, even. Singing is completely banned on the show, too. Or should be. If you want to support the show, and, uh, of course, uh, long-time listeners who go all the way back to episode 98 are aware that we put together Shivam singing on... Uh, or did... Wait, did we release that? No, it was... Why would you do that to me? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. It was laughing. I I actually didn't release the Shivam singing part. So oh, if you want to support the show, <laughs> you know, other podcast hosts get to do little bits at the end of the podcast. Yeah, I get like an hour of me sounding like the Joker. <laughs> no, it's great. It's great. <laughs> Visit patreon.com slash commander and MTG. And if we get enough donations, I guess you can you can specifically donate to hear Shivam sing even more. It's wonderful. Don't forget to visit us on YouTube and give us a five-star rating wherever it is you get your podcast from. Oh, Shivam, this week we have a wonderful show lined up for our listeners. We have Hour of Devastation with Ian Duke, who is being so patient. (laughs) Ian Duke started playing Magic way back in 1995 when Ice Age and Homelands were the newest sets. He... (laughs) <laughs> he has a brother, and he played some magic with him, and after some on-and-off breaks, he got serious with competitive magic in the mid-2000s. 
2000s, played on the Pro Tour, and guess what, Shivam? Joined Wizards R&D as a developer in 2012. And he's a senior game designer now, and we just found out, listeners, he is on the newly formed Play Design team. That's actually super exciting. Yeah, it's really cool, and he has a, a an interesting role. So say hi, Ian. How are you? Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. It's our absolute pleasure. We're super excited to have you because uh, you were the head designer of our dissertation, but also this is one of the first <laughs> real podcasts that we get to have after the play design team was announced. You guys announced it at GP Vegas. You had that kind of panel there with uh, some of the folks from the team. But a lot of listeners and stuff are still kind of in the dark over what this team does because it's so new. I know that Paul Chion just moved from here in the Bay Area up to Seattle to join that. And Melissa DeTora is on that team. And so can you tell us a little bit more about what this does and how it compares to normal development? Yeah, great, great question, Shivam. So play design, it's so, we sort of... We took what development used to do, which is just kind of this large umbrella that covered everything from the second half of designing sets all the way through, you know, sculpting standard environments, setting the philosophy for how we'd handle different formats, standard, modern, legacy, commander, and so on, handling, you know, the banned and restricted list, and all these broad different topics, almost, you know, too many to name. And we sort of realized that that was just kind of too much on all under one umbrella. So we decided to kind of restructure things a little bit and subdivide out what design development used to do and kind of break it up in a different way. So play design is a new way of slicing up that responsibility and saying we're going to have a team that's dedicated just to to format balance, you know, to our, our limited environments, to our standard environment, to how we handle the BNR lists, uh, and really just focusing on game balance and play testing and what it's like to actually play Magic, as opposed to, you know, all the other things that go into designing and developing sets. How cool. Cool. So then, what does the other half of the development team do if you guys have taken away the kind of playtesting and focusing on making sure the, like, the stuff actually works as planned? So great question. So some of the folks who are on the old development team, they've now moved to um, sort of set leadership type roles. So we've kind of just broken things up and restructured it in a slightly different way. And honestly, I'm not sure exactly what I can or can't say about this Uh right now, but uh, because we're kind of still in the mix of, of rolling out how we're announcing that. But essentially, we've taken all the responsibilities of the design process, including how we sculpt our formats, and we've kind of broken them up into different areas here. So now we have um, what we think of as a vision design team, which sort of starts out the the early planning and architecture for the set and what the set structure is going to look like and maybe a little bit of the mechanics there. And then it moves on to a larger set design process that kind of encompasses both of what design and development used to do, so both the initial and the final design. And then after that comes play design's main main area of interaction where we're actually kind of testing the final cards and making numbers changes and balance tuning and things like that. Um, But that said, each of those three groups does have a lot of influence throughout the entire process. It's not like a continuous hand, it's not like a discrete handoff from one section to the next to the next. We're all kind of always talking, but they're just general kind of areas of the set process that are owned by different teams, if that sort of makes sense. Maybe I'm not making sense, but hopefully it gives you at least a sense of flavor (laughs) of what's going on with that structure. I I was talking to somebody else earlier uh, earlier today about how this feels like this is the largest wholesale change we've seen in in terms of WotC R&D, just in terms of like how you guys are now breaking up the design and development. Because I know that Mark Rosewater has spoken about 
changing design development, introducing the early stages of design for when Sean and Ethan were designing Concept Tarkir, for instance, and coming up with the idea for how to make a draft set and adding the play design team to act as the final polish on this. And I'm really eager to see where you guys go from here. Do you know what the first sets we would see that would have this impact? That's a really good question, and it's really hard to answer, actually, because we have so many (laughs) sets that are in flight at the same time. You know, making a set from start to finish might take 18, 24 months, maybe even more, when you're talking about the really initial exploratory uh, phases of things and working on the creative and so forth. But I would say somewhere between codename Soup and maybe codename Milk down the road. Uh, so, So quite a distance in the future before things are like fully integrated with this new system, I guess. But it, it sort of depends on, on where you start counting. Cool. Soup and milk. I love these code names. Man. I'm oh, yeah. we've, we've got some really good ones coming up here. <laughs> <laughs> Soup and milk sounds delightful together. <laughs> <laughs> That's the word I would have used. <laughs> well, all right. So let's bring it back to talk about things that the people who are actually still listening care about (laughs) which is to say brand new set just came out and a lot of us just went to pre-release for hour of devastation a set that i understand you had a little bit to do with did you get a chance to do any pre-releasing i did i got got to go to our own internal pre-release that we have uh, uh shortly before the set comes out and just got to play a few games there it was great saw lots of people playing deserts and casting gods and killing each other's gods or not killing each other's gods and dying to them and lots of cool story <laughs> moments going on. Nickel Bolas came out a couple times down there as well. So it was uh, definitely an exciting experience. Well, the question all the kids want to know is what was your promo? Oh gosh, that's a really good question. I, I think I want to say it was Hazaret's Undying Fury is what comes to mind. Whoa. There. That's a good card. Yeah. It's a pretty Are exciting you? one. If you're someone who well, likes high variance, that, that card's <laughs> for you. <laughs> yeah. I was just listening to another podcast doing a rares and mythics show and uh let's say the host are maybe less fans of high variants than folks in commander might be but <laughs> over here the idea of flipping over five cards after shuffling my deck and not being able to set it up i am all about that and i'm super excited to see what kind of ridiculous garbage you can get up to in our format of choice with hazard mm. <laughs> that card is so good and so bad at the same time <laughs> well i'm glad there are some fans out there for it that's what we always try to do with each card is maybe not everybody lo- loves every single card but there should be someone who loves each card that's kind of our our philosophy there look man i'm the timmiest timmy there is so i am all about ridiculous bonkers splashiness and like the more like terrifying moments you can have pulling off the top of the deck the happier i am so uh, I'm super excited to play that kind of chaos nonsense. What about you, Phil? Did you have a fun pre-release? Yeah, I did have a fun pre-release. I lost all but one of my matches, but that's not anything new. <laughs> and I uh, I pulled two, uh, what is it, the Miriarchs? Oh, yeah, the Majestic Miriarch, yeah. Majestic Miriarch, yeah, which 
I was not too sanguine on before I actually played with it. And then playing with it, I'm like, oh, I don't know, maybe it fits into a commander deck because, like, you have to go wide with it, of course. And I I just had this magical Christmas land moment of, you know, an 80-80 <laughs> Miriarch, majestic Miriarch <laughs> in my Rith deck and maybe something relatively mild like a 2020 in my, in my uh, uh, Marath deck. So, I don't know, maybe I'll end up playing with it. And, of course, I got that as my promo, and then it was in the first pack I cracked. So, I went green. I went green-white. I had 15 minutes to figure it out. I did. And uh, it's. Uh, I'm, I'm still wondering why I lost all of my matches except one. So, I went 1-4. I went, I went <laughs> because this set is all about two drops running into your face. Yeah, pretty much. And I had, I had very few two drops in comparison and i haven't even looked at the rest of my pool i just went well i'm gonna with these two miriarchs i need to go as wide as possible so give me all the tokens and i had an oketra's monument and uh oh, i see, said that yes sounds please fun. so it actually with the oketra's monument oh i had an, the anointed priest as well so i got life for every one of these tokens i created and at one point i had a good you know five or six creatures out on the board with a mirror with a miriarch and so i had a it fluctuated between a Eight and a fourteen, fourteen uh, Miriarch. It was pretty good. Wow, that sounds yeah. awesome. And that that game, I won. <laughs> surprise, <laughs> surprise. I don't know. I mean, yeah, this set definitely has a hallmarks of a Sean main set in that the best creatures are super low to the ground and super fast, and there's lots of modal cards all over the set, like the amazing new counter spell slash card draw. Uh, what's it? Supreme Will. That card looks amazing. And is going to replace, might even just replace straight counterspell in my deck, in my zombies mm. deck, just because the added draw functionality is so good. Yeah, that's a super cool card. Actually, one of my favorites in the set. That was part of a little mini cycle that we actually added in development. There's there's one in blue, there's one in red, and there's one in black. And maybe you guys can tell me what the uh, unification of those colors is there, <laughs> and what, what how that's important to the set. But um, we basically wanted to have some spells that kind of felt made you feel like a, like an evil mastermind that you had choices over doing some horrible things to your opponent or some great things for yourself, and we put them in the the Grixis Nickel Bolas colors to reinforce that. Mm. Yeah, I mean, one of the things is I noticed is that all three of those cards, because of the mod- modality of them, suddenly become so much more useful in Commander than they would have been just as single cards. Because in Commander, you would almost never play either a straight Edict by itself or a straight a hand destruction card, like the uh, Mind Rod type of card. But being able to have the choice to decide between that means that if a guy's been sitting around and has those last two cards in his hand and it's turn seven, you can just go and exile one of them. Or if somebody's playing Voltron, you can use that same card to make him sacrifice it. And it's just amazing. Like, and all three of these cards had bonkers, like... Effects that are okay by themselves, but just become so much better when you have the choice of when and how to use them. And I thought that was just super cool. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. That's something we, we think about and talk about a lot as we're making cards, you know, both for competitive constructed standard as well as for commander is that the, yeah. the additional option of having the choice of doing two very different effects can really give cards a lot of flexibility. And uh, personally, I really like getting cards like that into people's commander decks, just so you can have answers 
against, you know, whatever nefarious things your opponent is trying to pull off, but not feel like you're really dragging yourself down by including all of these single target removal spells and counter spells and trying to be the sheriff. Exactly. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with being the sheriff, though, if you're playing that. That's true. <laughs> but we, we like to give you a little extra extra push at uh, options for being the sheriff. So, And um, just for completion's sake, it's Supreme Will. What are the uh, red and black ones? Doomfall, I think, is the name of the black one. And then oh, Abrade right. is the red one, which does three damage to a creature. It kills an artifact. Yeah, see, that card yeah. is actually solid for Commander. Just because... Killing artifacts, you're always going to have wanted. Yeah. There's always an artifact on the table that's worth killing, and there's always something that's worth lightning bolting. Well, I mean, maybe not as much because our creatures tend to be uh, large, but it's still just having that choice is so good. And uh, I don't know. Those cards are just, I think they're going to be mainstays in pretty much any format that can play them. Well, at least standard in Commander, if not. Uh, modern or others because i know those guys have cheaper older cards that they can use <laughs> and by cheaper you mean of course the less mana I, I mean, intensive uh, mana cost not the 45 dollars you're gonna have to pay in the aftermarket for <laughs> for your land destruction spell or whatever <laughs> yes there is an accessibility problem in modern well yes yes there is <laughs> but eternal master ah. went a long way in letting me finally get my Stupid fetch lands, which is great. And it has a better expansion looking symbol, so that makes me happy. Man, you started with Ice Age and Homelands? Those yeah, like, I did. It, so I started like with the dark, so maybe about a year before you did. And Ice Age was great flavorfully, but now that you look back at those cards, they're so bad. Oh, yeah, and- it's absolutely wild like if 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 anybody who's out there listening hasn't had the chance to look through the ice age card list uh, you should definitely do it it is just so crazy comparing that to uh, what our (laughs) modern sets look like uh like there were i think two rare cards that made basic lands tap for different colors of mana in the same set (laughs) do you really need two of them i don't know if we even need one one of them them was the (laughs) the amazing one that was like the aether like tornado or some nonsense that made yeah. all of your colors turn and it just bonkers in in commander that would just ruin the game because nobody would ever be able to play again but no balduvian shaman balduvian shaman was a common that did something around the lines of if there is an enchantment in play that is white or like says something about white you can tap it to change its color to something else and then give it like cumulative upkeep it is like the literal most specific repeatable effect I've ever seen in magic that has no business. Like <laughs> there's not even a single card in ice age that can be affected by this card. So it literally did nothing. Yeah. That's a super bizarre card. I think I know what they were going for with that card actually, which was in early magic. The circles of protection were a really right. important part yeah. of white's color pie. And I think the goal behind that card was you could switch your opponent's circle of protection to protect from a different color. So you could sneak past it. But like, it ended up being the most convoluted common card I think the game has ever seen. It's just a totally wild one. <laughs> and it's got like two point font. So it's just like, what in the hell is even going on with this card? Uh, yeah, the, the the Oracle text is specific to a target white enchantment. It has to be for Circles of Protection. Yes. We were using a lot of them back then. Oh, man. Circle of CLP Protection. Red, man, yeah. shut you guys they, down. I think they Bam. were an important part of uh, the intended game balance, actually, in early Magic, is that if your friend just had an awesome red deck that you couldn't beat, you'd just board in a bunch of uh, Circle of Protection Red and just smash them. Yeah. 
Dude, it's unbeatable because Red can't do anything about enchantments for like 15 years. So <laughs> you're just done. <laughs> oh, man. Ice Age. Sorry, I was just looking at our show plan and I remembered being 15 again and, you know, casting my original uh, sibling yeah. spirits and stuff. And it's like, ah, oh, those were good days. Now, before we dive into the main topic, which, strangely enough, is Hour of Devastation... You play a little bit of Commander, don't you? I do. From time to time, I also led uh, the final development of Commander 2014. Yeah. So that was a great experience to have had Nicely as well. Nicely done. But actually, I would say I wouldn't characterize myself as a huge Commander player. I'm actually more of a one-on-one competitive kind of a player, but I have played a decent amount of Commander throughout my career, especially when I was working on Commander 2014. And uh, I actually started, I played Commander with my brother, actually, shortly after the format started to become popular, although we had kind of a, a different slant on it, being the spiky yeah. tournament players that we are. Look, I'll be honest, see, I just cannot imagine Reed Duke sitting down with a 100-card singleton and playing anything like what most of us might imagine Commander would look like. It, it, I think it wasn't much like uh, what most of you would imagine Commander was. This, again, this was shortly after the format started becoming popular. We heard about it. We said, hey, let's let's give this a try. And we, you know, we built um, basically decks to play one-on-one against each other. And so my first commander was uh, Kira, Great Glass Spinner. And I built this deck with all these counter spells and, you know, Vendillion Click and all these efficient um, blue attacking creatures and stuff, disruptive creatures. And Reed's commander was Braids. Uh, which I believe now is banned as a commander, probably for good reason. Um, but yeah, we were just the spikiest of the spikes, um, just trying to smash each other with counter yeah, spells and sinkholes so... and strip mines and all sorts of stuff. Oh god, that seems so miserable. I mean, yes, it, it was, was amazing one on one, I'm sure, but but Kira like counters like everything. You know, braids is just like whatever doesn't get countered gets braided, and you guys are just sitting there with no permanent staring yep, at each other. I think our first couple games, I ended up getting locked out of the game with no permanence. So <laughs> that was my uh, my initial commander experience. <laughs> that that obviously like things evolved from Leo there, Ball, but you know. Lie. Oh, man. oh, that's funny, and oh, god, braids. And by funny, I mean it's like being trapped in a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> it was our own form of fun. We enjoyed it. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, if you like to play hardcore control decks and vintage or something, I'm sure that's perfect. <laughs> hey, is, so is Kira your favorite commander? Which is your favorite commander? I want to say, so one of my later, again, early on commander decks that I built was around Ashling the Pilgrim. Um, I love Lorwyn. It's one of my favorite sets of oh, all yeah. time. And that was a really cool character that I, I love to play with in limited in that format. So I, I decided to bring her back as a commander. And I have some sort of different moods when I play Commander. Sometimes I'm in the mood to, you know, actually try to win the game, and sometimes I'm in the mood to get a lot of card advantage and build up a huge board and stuff. But sometimes I'm in the mood to just, like, do as much damage to everyone at the table as possible. <laughs> so I built this deck with, like, earthquakes and comet storms and all this red direct damage. And I knew, you know, realistically, I probably wasn't going to win a big multiplayer game of Commander with a mono-red uh, earthquake <laughs> deck. But I just figured, hey, I could, you know, do as much damage as possible to the table and, you know, maybe top the DPS meter, as it were, in uh, our Commander game. <laughs> so that was my goal for that, and I had a lot of fun with it. That's amazing. I actually have an Ashling deck. I built it mostly as a joke, but most of the cards in there kind of support the... Uh, they, sorry, they, they grant protection from red for some reason. And uh, it's just an awful lot of fun when you've got a batter skull and then something, the sword that provides protection from red, one of the swords. And uh, then it, the whole board goes to hell because you've sent it there. It's lovely. 
nothing like dealing a ton of damage and destroying a lot of permanents, right? <laughs> yeah. And so that's your favorite commander, but does is that sort of aggro board control your favorite strategy? I wouldn't say it's my favorite strategy. Again, I think when I'm actually trying to win, I'm uh, at my heart, you know, being a spiky tournament player, I really love card advantage and value. So maybe something that's more like uh, Sultai, Life from the Loam, you know, cycling, mm-hmm. get, getting a bunch of cards up on my opponent, having, you know, having to discard the hand size at the end of the turn. That's what life is really all about. <laughs> <laughs> that actually sounds much more fun than Braids and Kira, not going to lie. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> yeah. So that's what I'm that's what I'm in for when I'm, I'm more in the mood to play, you know, a, a wholesome, hearty, uh, you know, multiplayer commander game where I'm actually trying to win and have a good time and stuff. Yeah, and while we're talking about commanders that you've worked on, C14 is definitely my favorite commander set so far. Even though I don't know that the blue or black decks were particularly great, the white and the green and the red decks have basically become like cores of commander decks that I play and love now, especially the white deck, which is one of my favorite precons of all time. And I think that was just... Like, you and Ethan did such a good job with that set. Yeah, it's a it's, good set. Oh, great. I'm really glad to hear that. That makes me feel great. And actually, um, the white deck was the deck that I owned, actually, during that process, too. So great to hear that oh. you really enjoyed that one like, in particular. Soldier token decks and that sort of thing is, like, my bread and butter. And that white uh, pre-con deck was basically, like, exactly what I had hoped and wanted to have come out. And it's still, like, the white deck and the green deck are still just so much fun. and. Yeah, no, it's C14, phenomenal, phenomenal set. I just had to say that before we kept going, because I'm like, oh, God, I love that set so much. Thanks, <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate it. Now, we just did something with with our listeners and uh, specifically our patrons and a couple of guests. It, we, we called it the sickest EDH play. It comes from one of our deck testing group members, Jeremiah. So, can you recount in under a minute your sickest EDH play? You can even go back to Braids and... Oh, uh, man. I don't know if I can come up with the sickest play, but I guess the story I can tell is from working on Commander 2014, when we were first working on what do our Planeswalkers look like and how are we going to balance these, um, I came up with the original version of uh, Teferi, Temporal Archmage, I think he's called. And I came up with his ultimate there, which I thought was a really cool ability that you can activate your planeswalkers on your opponent's turn and get extra uses out of them. And people kind of told me like, ah, it doesn't really seem that awesome. Doesn't really seem that powerful. And I was like, all right, guys, well, let's, let's go to the next play test. Let's play a game with it and let's see how it goes. And sure enough, you know, everybody underestimated and I was playing with the fairy and just taking him up and taking him up and people just kind of left me alone. I'm like, you guys really don't think this is powerful, huh? Okay. I'll use my ultimate go ahead. Now I'm drawing four cards per turn cycle, generating 16 extra mana per turn cycle. You know, if I had any other Planeswalkers, they were also going off and just easily smashed everyone that game. So we ended up uh, actually, I think, increasing the amount of loyalty you need to activate Teferi's ultimate after that. But uh, that just goes to show, you know, don't underestimate a Duke. When I tell you something's powerful, you better believe me. (laughs) Yeah, dude. I mean, Teferi plus Chainveil and you can just go to stupid land really quickly. Yep. Oh, man. God, oh that's, God, that is not nice at all. <laughs> what was the original ultimate cost? If uh, I, I don't even remember what the exact numbers were because we played around with them a lot, but I do know it, it yeah. took like one or two fewer turn cycles to actually hit the ultimate, so it was happening pretty quick. Oof. And we're like, oh, this is game-winning enough that we want to slow it down just a little bit and give oh people God. more space to interact, you know? <laughs> God, can, <laughs> can you imagine? Yeah, exactly. Uh, Jesus. <laughs> and... 
I mean, that is so stupid, man. That card is so dumb, especially <laughs> if you play it not as your uh, leader, but as one of the 99 in like a five color set or something. And you have doubling season out, so he can ultimate basically this day he lands. Oh, yeah. Doubling season. The card that breaks everything. If I had a nickel for, you know, every time somebody says this planeswalker breaks with doubling season in commander or whatever else, it, it comes up a lot in our discussions, too. And, you know, ultimately we. We decide to make cool cards and not hamstring ourselves based on some of those interactions that can come up because, you know, we know the commander audience is, is mature enough that they'll self-police some of those things sometimes. And it's not worth nerfing all of our cards for all of time, you know, just because be it works There's with doubling season. Yes. really, really fun about being able to do stupid things like that. Like... People always, I mean, I know that I read like Mara's blog regularly and he's always talking about, yeah, we didn't want to make it, you know, too busted with doubling season or whatever. I'm like, but some of us play for the ability to do ridiculous things with planeswalkers like instantaneously. Like right. think about That's the fact the that you point. could just turn Gideon on, on somebody else's turn to have an indestructible blocker. And that's like the tamest instant result of like being able to use Teferi's emblem, right? <laughs> Yep, for okay. sure. And I think that is some of the appeal, the appeal of Commander is finding those kind of broken interactions or two-card combos or crazy things that you can do and, you know, getting to do them once or twice before your your friends disown you and don't invite you back to the next game or whatever it is. I know different different groups have different tolerances for <laughs> infinite combos and things like that in Commander. And, you know, largely I think that's a healthy dynamic and, you know, we're going to make awesome cards and let you do awesome things with them and you know, if that's not working out for your play group, that's kind of something that you can self-police a little bit. I have a development question. Sure. The The last couple of years, it seemed like Wizards has been tamping down on the uh, the doubling season ultimate combinations, right, for a bunch of different planeswalkers. But the Amonkhet block seems to have kind of thrown that by the wayside, where there's they these planeswalkers have ultimates where if they come out with the doubling season they get to ultimate right away and that's definitely a change over the last couple of years is that was that a conscious decision i'd say it's less of a conscious decision and it's more of the philosophy of we're going to try to avoid it whenever we can you know if it of course if it's free to avoid those type of interactions and situations we'll do them you know we're not going out and trying to break the game for no reason but when we do find a card that's really awesome and it plays really fun in standard or modern or whatever their other format and it plays really fun in commander without the interaction with doubling season sometimes we'll just say hey you know this card is worth it it's really fun it's worth printing this the net fun that everybody has with this is going to outweigh the potential for you know a problem problematic cool. interaction and you know that, that's a philosophy that i i can definitely you know, get behind and say with a straight face, I think is the right thing to do. Hmm. Awesome. Yeah, it's making some cool planeswalkers, that's for sure. Because after all, Magic wouldn't be a very fun game if we just had to nerf everything all of the time because what if this interaction with this thing and this specific format and all that kind of stuff. So ultimately, we want to make cool cards that please people and are fun to play with, and that's the number one goal. Yeah, I was talking about that. I think with uh, Sean Watson recently, that you know, if, if you had to, if you had to, if you had a choice between making a completely safe set or one that took risks and could possibly break, what would you do, right? And it was, it was, it was an interesting discussion to say the least, because we went into like all of the risks and how good it is for Magic to take those risks, and like, you know, you look at the Emrakul uh, Etherworks Marvel uh, interaction and. I don't think that was planned, but certainly it's interesting, 
right? Yeah, designing and taking risks in magic, that's a super deep topic that, you know, I'm sure we could do a podcast or multiple podcasts just on that alone. Mm. And yeah, it's it's really interesting to discuss and debate. It's something we talk about a lot uh, here in the office, just about, you know, what are the, the right types of risks to take? What are the risks that make the game more fun? Because after all, magic is a game about self-expression. It's a sandbox game. A lot of the fun for some people that play magic is finding things that either maybe weren't intended or you know ended up being stronger than the designers initially thought. And if we wanted to be perfectly safe and take no risks whatsoever, we'd really have to just you know tamper down that excitement to a level where I don't think magic would be as fun of a game as it could be. Well, look, we already had two sets which were the safest sets of all time. One was called Homeland, and the other one was called Mercadian Mass. (laughs) And if you're talking about, let's say, the worst-received sets of all time, I think you would probably find those two somewhere near the top as well. Safety, I mean, it's like fair and balanced magic. Everybody's like always trying to get to like, oh, you know, we need to make sure that every color is balanced. It's like, no, dude, this this has still got to be a game. It's still got to be enjoyable. And you've still got to give the player the feeling that they have found some weird edge or they're going to try to do something that's different and unique in a way that'll give them some fun and give them some thrill of feeling that something cool is about to happen. If it's so safe that we all know that it's programmatically just like this you know, set of cards will always be that set of cards because we built it that way, then you didn't build a random card game. You built chess, right? And... Chess is great. I love chess. However, there's that's not what I'm playing Magic for. Right? I'm playing because I want to know that when I shuffle my deck and randomly pick the top five cards, insane stuff happens. We got to be careful when people are asking for safe sets because safe generally doesn't equal fun. Right. Or at least they're not, you know, they're not synonymous. And, you know, don't get me wrong. I don't want people to come out of this conversation and be like, who is this guy? He's supposed to be on the play design team and he's talking about taking risks and throwing balance (laughs) out the window and stuff. And no, please, please. That's not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is that part of what makes magic fun is that we're pushing boundaries. We're exploring new space. We're making cards that no one has ever seen before. And that there is that enticing feeling that like, hey, I can figure out a combination that maybe no one else has done before or wasn't intended. And and that's a big part of the deck building and the fun and the exploration aspect of the game, which I think are really important parts of the game. So can we do all that? And can we take some moderate risks and some some healthy risks to make the game more fun, but also maintain game balance and make sure that the games are playing out in a fun way and the play patterns are fun? That's really what play design is all about. It's not about being as safe as possible and making sure that nothing ever is exciting or you know or comes up with an unintended interaction or I mean look you can take a ton of risks and still say that smuggler's copter is maybe not the best idea for for a card without being safe right like i i think i think we're on the same page here and again i do look forward to especially your new play design team it looks like there's a lot of really smart people on there and uh, i'm e- eager to see what you guys come up with yeah yeah, it's, it's been great so far. Sorry, Who's the go, leader go of that set, by the way? I know, the, the team? The leader of the team. So Dan Burdick is a, a new addition uh, to Wizards R&D. He is the manager for the team, so sort of the personnel manager. And then my role as a, as a senior designer on the team is kind of more leading the technical aspects and the philosophy for the team. So oh, sort of the, cool. the two of us working together, although you know, Dan, Dan is definitely the official manager for the team. Wow, okay, well, that's cool. All right. 
<laughs> no, I mean, I, I, there's Remember so much kids. more I want to ask, but I'm also trying to rein myself in so that yeah, we should we, we should talk some, we should talk about Commander some on this podcast as well. Well, we as, should talk uh, <laughs> about Hour of Devastation a little bit. Oh yeah, that sounds yeah. Even better. Yeah, we're going to talk about Hour of Devastation, and we'll uh, we'll do what we can to take a Commander tack with it. So we'll entertain the uh, three or four listeners who've remained uh, this far. Hey, you know what? Oh, I love boy. interviews like this because we get to see a side of R and D that you don't get to see very often, especially since yeah. you guys don't generally come out. And I mean, the articles are wonderful and I read them every day, but there's a difference in having the candid back and forth, which is just to me, the, the power of podcasting. And I love that stuff, but let's move into our main topic, which is talking about the brand new set hour of devastation. <laughs> yes. And we are going to talk about the developer, uh, developer, developer, oh because I, I was thinking developer portion. How about that? We're going to talk about the development portion <laughs> of Hour of Devastation. And just as a recap, this is a... What the heck is going on over there? Oh, develop pork? Develop pork. Very funny. <laughs> Very funny. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. We'd like to thank Ian for coming on the show. <laughs> First and last time. Who knew? Who knew we would we would coin develop pork with this? Woo! Well, is that it's what you call closet. gratuitous cards that were added in development? Oh, that's oh, yeah. good. That actually, I like that. Yeah, we had to we had to shave out these designs because they really just ultimately were develop pork cluttering up the set. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that's, I might need to find some way to force that into the magical fun. <laughs> You know, you know what? I think this is one. We just leave it there, and we see what happens. We, a year from now, we'll have somebody on, and they'll be like, yeah, that card was real developer. <laughs> yeah, we had to throw it in there for our uh, constituents <laughs> in the spike category. <laughs> but yeah, so Ian, we asked you to grab a couple of cards that we thought you might have some neat stories well, for. Hold on. Hold on. Some uh, some basic facts about Hour of Devastation released by the time we hear this on July 14th. So it's out there right now. Go buy it. Go buy lots of it. Ian needs you to buy a lot of it. And then <laughs> it's got 199 cards in it. And, uh, well, there you go. Now go on. I'm sorry. <laughs> All I know is that I really want to get one of those red D4s that they were giving away during the pre-release yeah. that I didn't get a chance to get. But uh, the red D20 spin down that comes in the fat packs and in the pre-release kits is amazing. And I say that as a person who collects all these spin downs anyways um so we asked ian to yeah pick... how did you get the d4s though well you have to do like stuff and i can have to run the gauntlet or you have to like you know fulfill some weird i don't know i didn't get one that's how so i can't tell you how we get them man my store wasn't running any of that stuff well you need to do what jimmy wong does and fly up from los angeles to the bay area to come to my store anime imports where we can play uh six pre-releases in a row I'm sure your wife saw, will not I, mind that at all. <laughs> I, 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 hey, as long as I can crash on your couch, dude, I'm you're good. welcome. It's our store here in the Bay is like amazing. Uh, Gavin yeah. Verhey came down to visit a few months ago, and I took him down there, and we had a grand old time. Next, next pre-release for a set that Ian was lead developer on. I'll come up there. Yeah, it should be good times. Now onto our main topic, unless there's something else. No, I didn't think so. So we had asked Ian to pick a handful of cards that he might have interesting stories for. And uh, the first card that he picked was one that I was actually really interested in. 
and I'm hoping I crack in one of these packs. Uh, Neheb the Eternal, who is the legendary creature zombie minotaur warrior, who has the smallest uh, text in a modern M15 frame card with the like zombie minotaur warrior, which, God, getting that on there must have made your card design, like your card text team really frustrated because they had to drop the font size for the first time ever. Oh, yeah, there are definitely some pretty cool and intricate creature types and creature type combinations in this block. Yeah, I love it. I love, love, love my elf merfolk goblins. And <laughs> Zombie Minotaur Warrior, at least is a little bit more realistic. Legendary creature Zombie Minotaur Warrior. That's incredible. Enchantment creature gods are calling. They want yeah, their, like, uh, smaller fonts. Right? I mean, Nylea's <laughs> sitting there saying... You can give a zombie Minotaur warrior his text, but I can't get a freaking Nylea's bow. <laughs> you know, also the art, by the way, on this card is amazing. Maybe my favorite art in the set. Well, it's so amazing that Nicol Bolas himself calls out Neheb on it. This is what glory looks like. It's right. He's not, not lying at all. Yeah, he's not lying. But can you imagine of the thousands of Eternals that he's got? He's like, you. Neheb. Well, Neheb you looks like he walked right out of like, like Ronin Warriors or World of Warcraft or something. He's just super baller. Yeah. And he's got a flaming Avacyn spear in his hand, which makes me happy. <laughs> yeah. How did he get that? You know, we don't ask questions. Yeah. yeah so yeah. tell us about this card, Ian, because this looks like the first time Red has had mono ramp in quite some time. Yeah, so it should come as no surprise that uh, after leading Commander 2014, I have quite a passion for monocolor Commander decks, and so I'm always mm. excited to kind of come up with really cool but also in-color pie things for monocolor Commanders to be able to do. So this card actually was designed during the development process, and it was actually at our creative team's request because they had this character that they wanted to integrate into the uh, Magic Story articles that are posted on the website, and you know, they said, hey, this is a cool character. Can you make a card out of this uh, this awesome zombie minotaur warrior? And I said, sure, we'll see what we can do. So um, we had a slot in the set for a, a red rare, or sorry, a, a red um, a rare mythic rare legendary creature. So we started thinking about, okay, you know, what are some of the set themes that we can put onto this card? And we came up with, okay, we have this afflict mechanic. We don't have any legends that have the afflict mechanic. So what would that look like? And, you know, so we started down the path of Afflict caring about, you know, your opponent losing life and how much life they've lost this turn. And red is the color of producing lots of mana. So why don't we do a red legend that produces a lot of mana if you can deal a lot of damage to your opponents or make them lose life? And actually somewhat, this was somewhat inspired by my love of my Ashling the Pilgrim deck where I like to just do a bunch of, you know, area effect damage to the whole table. And if you had this this character in there too, you could pr- produce a bunch of mana and maybe go like before combat, you know, earthquake for a bunch and then attack someone after all their creatures are dead. And then post combat, you get a bunch of mana from the earthquake. You get a bunch of mana from hitting with Neheb and then you do something awesome with it. Like, I don't know, fireball somebody else or whatever else you want to do there. So all in all, I think it's pretty cool. <laughs> oh, there was also one other cool thing that came up with this is we identified as we were working on this card that there's a combo with the card Aggravated Assault, I think, which I'm yeah. sure I'm sure people have acknowledged in the real world already. Um, but that is there. Yes, you can sometimes set up board states where you'll do some pretty crazy or um, uh, sort of unlimited things with that combination. But ultimately, we talked it through, and this is an example of a card that we thought was cool enough that, yeah, we're willing to take that risk that, you know, if you go through the hoop of building a mono-red commander deck and you have, you know, the right cards in your deck, you're able to set up the right board state that, yep, you could get a win from doing that 
if your opponents can't stop you or interact with you by killing your creature or whatever. So somebody, <laughs> heard, somebody out there will have get the like, achievement unlocked on that one. <laughs> all I'm saying is that if you have the right sealed deck, you could even theoretically do this in limited if you happen to crack the aggravated assault invocation and crack a a mythic rare minotaur you could go to broken town oh that's right i actually i had forgotten that aggravated assault is also an invocation in the set which is pure coincidence by the way because we we actually talked about that interaction and it wasn't until much later that someone pointed out hey it's actually technically in the set already and i was like oh Maybe that's kind of cool. Maybe somebody will do that during the pre-release or something like that. Or like a pro tour, and then it would just be like hilarious. Yeah, aggravated assault. So listeners, if you manage to carry that combo off, immediately take a picture and send it to us. And you can't stage it. You have to do it honestly. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> and what was that dragon that we, uh, Phil, that we fought against at um, GP Vegas that gave you extra combat steps? When, remember... Oh. Uh, it's like yeah. a, was it Hellkite Charger um, or something like that? Yeah, it's like Hellkite yeah. Charger. I know which Hellkite. card you're talking about. Yeah, uh, yeah, because one of my dear friends was playing with that card, and she had an infinite combo that would let her with her dragons uh, do damage, untap everybody, get another combat step, and with Neheb, you could straight up do that without that green enchantment. So you could just go to Crazy Town in Mono Dragons, and God, man, I'm <laughs> so excited for this card. Oh, you know, and. It- it's not just add red to your mana pool for each one life your opponents have lost this combat. It's step. this turn. It's this turn. So you basically get this ever-increasing amount of mana. It is going to be obscene because it just keeps going yeah. and going. And I wonder if there's ways to like just really just break with this guy. Like That doesn't do anything with like Mana Flare, does it? No, because that's not from a land. But I'm sure there's ways that you could use this to just absurdly enhance your mana and then do what we used to do in the old days and just fireball the whole table for like 10,000, and that'll be great. Yeah. <laughs> and then get more it mana. It is Hellkite Charger, by the way. Hellkite Charger? Yeah. Hellkite Charger. That card is amazing. Yeah, no, I'm super excited. Well, And with Afflict, you get a guaranteed Dark Ritual at the end of your combat phase at least if you attack and get blocked. But uh, yeah, no, this guy I'm looking forward to playing and doing busto things with. <laughs> oh yeah, this is one of those cards like you know I'm sending it out there into the world and I can't wait to see what people do with it because I'm sure they're going to surprise me. So that's oh, a good feeling be, to have. It looks so much fun. Ian, your next card is pretty spiffy too. Yeah, this is. You want to intro this? Sure, one? this is Raziketh the Foul Blooded. This is an 8 mana 8 8 flying trample, and you can pay 2 life, oh, man. sacrifice another creature to Demonic Tutor, actually. So, this was another card that we came up with in the development process. This is sort of uh, what we call a top down around a certain character that we knew we wanted to tell a story about. This is one of Liliana's demons that holds her demonic contract. And so, he's following in the footsteps of popular folks like Grizzlebrand and Kothafed, I think was the other one that yep. we've seen so far. <laughs> yeah. um, so we knew he had big shoes to full uh, to fill. So we were thinking about, you know, what is something that just flavorfully feels really awesome and feels really like something that a cruel demon would do. And so Demonic Tutor naturally came up in the conversation and, you know, sacrificing creatures is something very cruel and demonic as well. So we paired those things together and came up with what I think is a pretty cool ability there. Um, Now, it's worth noting that the original version of this card actually didn't have the pay-to-life cost on it. We actually added that (laughs) later on in development 
as sort of a safeguard type thing. We talked about, you know, various other costs that we could put on there, like putting mana on there, but maybe that wasn't quite so exciting because as an eight mana creature, you really want to be able to play it and use it the same turn. So what's another cost we can put on there that will kind of bound the effect and make sure that there's no like infinite loop that we missed or something like that. That's not also mana, and we came up with life, and that also feels pretty demonic as well, and maybe harkens back to Vampiric Tutor as an example of a card uh, from early magic. Um, and so, yeah, we ultimately settled in on that, and I'm sure there are definitely some crazy busted things you can do with this in Commander. You know, I think as soon as people saw this, they're like, wow, this is going to be crazy. What's going to happen with this card? But uh, I think it's very exciting, and I'm curious to see what people end up doing with it. Well, I mean, first off, thank you for making an 8 8 cost 8. The after Grizzlebrand, it was a 7 7 <laughs> that cost 8. Seeing symmetry makes me and so many other like card nerds happy. But also, this is like got to be the most br- busted card since Grizzlebrand. Like, it's definitely on the watch list. Yeah, it's like A, it doesn't say tap, you can just keep doing this. And if you happen to have a breeding pit or I don't know, any number of um, ways to get a million and one tokens in black, gosh, how will that ever happen? And when you have 40 life, paying two life, not that big of a deal (laughs) to just tutor for your combo instantaneously. And if you're smart, you would have some like black card like Death Greeter in play or, I don't know, Blood Artist so that whenever you start pitching guys, you can gain life back. Zillapuck, Cutthroat, all these other just bonkers times so that you can just start getting more life. And one thing that's incredibly powerful in commander is just sacrificing creatures even if it's even without the tutor effect just being able to repeatedly sacrifice units is so good and this guy's just gonna oh man even with the prohibitively expensive casting cost this is commander i can play him whenever i want to theoretically (laughs) this is so dumb so good, but so dumb. <laughs> yep, definitely some busted stuff you can do with this card. And uh, I've had a good time reading the forums and watching as people post various combos or try to figure out exactly what the best thing to do with them is. You know, do you try to put them in your 99 and re- reanimate them out? Do you try to put in a bunch of sort of janky cards that result in some sort of infinite loop or semi-infinite loop or whatever? So people <laughs> kind of still figuring out exactly what the best thing to do with Razaketh is, but we'll stay tuned and, and find out what that is in the future. <laughs> yeah, I, I think in like an aristocrat's deck, this guy is going to be just so much fun and also just super miserable to play against. But I'm looking forward to it. And no review would be complete. And we're not even close, but it's good to get this part out of the way without a representative of the swarm. And we don't mean the filthy Golgari swarm, favorite color combination, but we mean the Locust God. So. Why don't you introduce this one, Ian? All right, the Locust God. Here it is. Good Lord. Four, a blue, and a red for a 4-4 flying. And whenever you draw a card, for any reason, including your draw step, you create a 1-1 blue and red insect creature token with flying and haste. (laughs) (laughs) And for two, a blue, and a red, you can loot. You can draw a card and then discard a card, which, by the way, also triggers that first ability. And then, as all the Hour of Devastation gods have... It says, when the Locust God dies, return it to its owner's hand at the beginning of the next end step. So what? So uh, let's talk about that last line for a second before we go on to how broken this guy is. Uh, this is you, uh, pretty interesting because we haven't seen this kind of immortality represented on a card of bouncing it back to your hand when he dies. We've definitely seen cards where when it goes to the graveyard, uh, shuffle it into your deck. We've seen, obviously, Indestructible before. But uh, how did you come up with 
bounce it to your hand because in Commander, that's amazing. That means that I don't have to pay the tax. Yeah, great question. I'm glad you brought that up. We actually had a ton of discussion around the gods in both Amonkhet and Hour of Devastation and how they would interact with each other or maybe look the same or maybe not look the same. And I was I was very much on the side of, you know, we've done the Theros gods before, we've done these indestructible gods that aren't creatures sometimes, and then if you turn on the right condition, then they can become creatures. And then in Amonkhet, we did uh, sort of a similar thing with um, gods that can't attack or block unless a certain condition is met. And, you know, some of us in R&D were... Since we worked so far in advance, we weren't actually sure how well-received the Amonkhet gods would be in comparison to the Theros gods, and I think there was some risk there that the players felt that they were a little bit derivative of the Theros gods, they weren't different enough, or they weren't exciting enough, so I very much wanted to take the Hour of Devastation gods in a slightly different direction. That said, we want to continue the through-line of what it means to feel like a god in magic, and we definitely nailed down that immortality was one of those aspects that we really felt God card should have. So I did a lot of exploration and came up uh, eventually with this form of immortality where when they die, they come back to your hand. And I like that for a couple different reasons. One, it feels different than the gods we've done before, but still feels like a form of immortality. Second, it actually allows a little bit more interaction with the gods, where I can kill your god for maybe a couple turns in a row with a creature removal spell, just to kind of hold it off and buy some time. But eventually that inevitability is that the god is eventually going to run me out of removal spells and come back. Um, and then the last thing is it actually fits pretty well with the story, too, in that in the story of Amonkhet, these these three gods that we eventually see in Hour of Devastation, they were actually absent from the world, and people didn't know they existed for quite some time, but then they reemerged and came back. And so that kind of flavorfully fits with these can go away for a little bit, for a little while, but they're always going to come back eventually. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> God, this is... These three, especially like, uh, they're so good. They're so good. Oh. How did you identify what it means to be a god in magic? It's just something we talk about a, a lot, like not this specific thing, but it's one of those topics that just comes up, you know, in the R&D pit, as we call it, just having conversations about, you know, we've done gods before in magic. We're going to be doing gods again. What are the important things to preserve as a through line to make them feel unified, but also feel different and exciting, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So hopefully we will see in the next commander set a remake of Corona the False God, so that we can make a five-colored God EDH set with all of the different gods in it. Oh, well, that sounds pretty cool. Uh, yeah, because Corona is also like a terrible, terrible card that really <laughs> ought to be re reimagined the way you guys did with such wonders as Felden. Uh, in... But she's a false god, so yeah. But she could maybe you could call her like I don't know, falser god. Uh, slightly less true God. I don't know. But um, yeah, so Locust Guy, he lets you loot, he lets you draw, and he lets you get spawn tokens. He's like Talrand. Uh, but this is going to be busted all day long because God knows it is well, It is hard to draw cards in Commander. Did you know that? Like, <laughs> You're kidding me. don't ever do the... We don't <laughs> get to draw very many cards in this. Oh, I'm sorry. That's just my Boros deck. <laughs> The only real problem with this is that it has the Melek problem of being a six converted mana cost card. And so as a commander, this thing is going to get expensive pretty quickly. Now, of course, it returns to your hand. It returns to your hand. It's never going to cost more than six ever. But no one's going to destroy this thing. Everyone's going to save their swords to plowshares and path to exiles and other exile effects for it. 
Yeah, but and so I'm I'm not saying it's not going to be a fun card when it goes off. It's going to be a great card, but in the meantime, you have to get to that point. And blue and red, you know, maybe you have a little neheb in there to get you get you up that ramp, or like you know, deflection or something. Because I feel like Locust God's definitely got a target on his face that looks like a giant locust. Because of yeah, the, which is really creepy. Yeah, this card is just gross. I'm not going to lie. But it just can get out of hand so quickly. So, so quickly. Ian, what have you seen this thing do? Oh, man. Definitely win a lot of limited games. I can tell you that much <laughs> in playtesting, that's for sure. Yeah. But there's also, I think, some pretty cool things you could do. If you can find a way to get the draw a card, create a creature, and actually loop that back around to drawing a card again, then you can really go off. So, like, hypothetically, if you had something like a skull clamp effect or you know, any, any type of thing that lets you sacrifice a creature to draw a card, <laughs> yes. then you can really yes, that's you can really start uh, <laughs> doing some pretty crazy shenanigans with that. So, God, this dude. I'm just imagining, like, you know, casting something like Wheel of Fortune or Time Twister or something absurd like that and just happened to get seven one ones with Flying in Haste. Why not? <laughs> this is so absurd. Why is this dude so damn absurd? But he's not nearly as absurd as the next card, which is my new instant, uh, sorry, Grim Grin, you're going away, Commander. My boy Scarab, who doesn't look nearly as creepy as his two brothers, but is still hella creepy. We talked about him a little bit on the Sean episode, but the five casting cost five, five. And And we are going to do a a, a deck tech or deck focus episode with Sean Watson's Scarab God after it's had a few weeks of uh, trials. Oh man, this guy... First off, you each opponent loses life equal, and you scry equal to the number of zombies you control, which with any Liliana emblem means that this is going to get absurd. <laughs> and I, I don't know. I look at like the mythics in this set, and literally absurd is the first word that I can think of. And I'm just going to be keep saying because these guys are so absurd. Like his second ability, exile a thing and eternalize it. And you get a zombie, and next turn you just lose life. So I took your best, dude. I, I was talking to some of my followers on Twitter, and I realized that if you had, let's say, Emrakul, the original, or, like, I don't know, one of the original Eldrazi Titans, when yeah. they go to the graveyard, before they get the replacement effect to shuffle in, you can use Scarab God's ability while they're still in there, while the trigger is on the stack, and eternalize them. So, like, you throw your Ulamog I- away, and, or, like... I let's say I get rid of your Ulamog somehow. It goes to the graveyard before you get to shuffle it in. I'm going to exile it and turn it into a four-four Ulamog, which still has I don't know, um, annihilate annihilator four plus all the other ridiculousness as a four-four zombie, and your guy gets exiled. I mean, you still have to shuffle your deck, but it's hilarious. It is so stupid in so many <laughs> wonderful ways. I love everything about this. And for instance, if one of your Hour of Devastation Gods dies, oh no, it returns it to its hand instead of going to the graveyard, so I can't eternalize it. That's too bad. But it goes to the graveyard. Does it? Oh. when the, well, Yeah, when it dies, you return oh, it. Oh, at, at the, the beginning end. of the next end step. That means it's sitting there for a while, and before it goes back, I'm just going to eternalize him. It's going to be yep. amazing. So what can you tell us about this, Ian? So first thing to point out about this is kind of the second part of the story of the gods here is something... Uh, as we talked about this, this kind of the structure of what they would look like, something Bark Rosewater came up with, I, I thought was really cool, is that each of the gods here has an ability 
and then it has an activated ability, sorry, it has like a static or a triggered ability, then it has an activated ability that actually plays into that static or triggered ability. So in this case, the Scarab God rewards you for having lots of zombies on the battlefield, but it also has an activated ability that creates a zombie. Similar to how the Locust God rewarded you for drawing cards, then it had an activated ability that let you loot and draw cards. So all the gods have the same structure here. And I think this one is particularly cool in the sense that there are a lot of exciting things you can do by stealing creatures from your own graveyard, from other people's graveyards. It acts a little bit as incidental graveyard hate, which I know people are always asking for more of in Commander because there's so many graveyard shenanigans going on. So having that little bit of utility there is really cool as well. Uh, and then also we made sure that the trigger made each opponent lose X life instead of just a single opponent lose one life. So it would kind of scale up and still have um, some good utility in larger multiplayer games. <laughs> that it does that is like the the tamest way to say how brutal this guy is gonna be <laughs> yeah it's it's the best of the hour of devastation gods but let me tell you something Fantastic. if i knew we were replacing old Grimgrin, i'm really sorry to hear that you know i might have thought twice about that because he's one of my favorite commanders as yeah well. I, I don't know i might not just because i love grimmy so much and my commander's a foil and i have a lot like that was my first commander deck i have a lot of fond memories and like zombies is seriously my favorite thing. I don't want to replace them, but there's so many good zombies that were put out in this set and in the last set that I'm gonna I'm thinking about it because this is this is just good, man. This card is just good. Yeah. Oh, well, related to zombies. Why was there no white black zombie legend? That's a good question. Or Esper zombie legend. Yeah, I mean, to some extent you can sort of ask that about why, you know, why wasn't there any, you know, one particular thing that would have made a cool commander? And the short answer is sort of just there's only so much set space, right? Like, we only get to make so many legends, and the sets only have, you know, so many rares and mythics that are allocated to them, and we sort of had some higher priority things in terms of the gods and some of the other legendary characters that were a big parts of the storyline that we want to tell stories about. But yeah, that that is a great question. I think that's maybe something that we didn't see here, but could see someday in the future, now that we have zombies in each of white, blue, and black as well as yeah. a couple in, in other colors as well, but those being the kind of the three major zombie colors now that it, I agree it would be super cool to see an Esper-colored zombie commander. All I'm saying is that if if Nicol Bolas was to, say, eternalize Chromium, then maybe we could have <laughs> a zombie Chromium-Esper cool come back with, like, you know, be the Esper zombie dragon lord, which would be amazing. But here's the question, would it still have Rampage 2? Well, no, it had Rampage 7, man. Oh. <laughs> Because when you're a flying 7-7, you need to have Rampage of all friggin' things. God, I, I, I loved that card till I used it, but God, it was terrible. But really, having a 7-7 flyer is its own reward. So, um, uh, But while I'm looking at all three of these cards, uh, these god cards here, one thing that I had asked Sean and I wanted to ask you as well is that so we're going to talk about Scorpion next, but his top ability is when a creature dies with a neg one, neg one, you draw a card. When Locust God says when you draw a card, you create a one, one insect. Why wasn't there, did you guys ever give a thought to maybe giving Scarab an ability, which was like when a creature or something comes loop. into play, do put a negative one counter on Oh, that's else? interesting. That's a, that's a really cool question. I think I'd seen somebody else bring that up before. And the answer is no, it's, it's actually kind of, unintentional that that thread is even started in the first place. We sort of, we mapped out what we wanted the structure of each of these guys to look mm. like in terms of what was their immortality ability and then having the, you know, activate the triggered ability that interacts with the activated ability. 
but we kind of just settled on each one to its own in a vacuum in terms of what that character did in the storyline and what felt like the right powers for it. So it was actually just kind of coincidence that the Scorpion God and the Locust God end up playing together in that way. I think had we noticed that, yeah, we probably would have talked about, is there a cool way to do these all together? And have them form a loop in the same way as. Are you familiar with the the stations in Fifth Dawn? Do you exactly. know these cards? Yes, yeah, so they kind of like loop or around. The modules. The in, input uh, of Kaladesh. one is the output of the one before it, and so they kind of chain together, right? And the modules in Kaladesh, we did that with too. But yeah, I think had had we noticed that pattern, we probably would have at least tried to complete it. Yeah, I think that's something you only really see when you're looking at the set from afar and you see all the cards, and it's probably hard to notice when you're actually just dealing with the cards on a one-by-one basis. Right, and in some cases, the cards are even changing on a weekly basis as we, you know, play test them and figure out things that aren't working and we try to solve problems. So it's it can be difficult to get that perspective of when the dust settles and everything is locked in, you know, looking at the final designs and saying like, hey, you know, could we have done this this tiny thing slightly differently? Can I ask you actually a question related to that? Sure. Which is, when you guys are doing that process, when you're in the play test process of this, do you like have just all the cards like listed on an Excel spreadsheet or something that you're tinkering the numbers up and down with? Or like, how do you like, do you keep track of the iterations the card has gone through? Uh, we do. Yeah. We have our own internal database called Multiverse. We actually call it Drake now. We just updated it. But that's where we, we keep all the card files and they're updated in real times as the set lead is working on the set. And, you know, so for example, we might have a limited play test and people give feedback after the play test and they say, this card was really fun or this card wasn't fun or, you know, this design kind of blew up my game because there's this big problem with it. And then the set lead will take all that feedback and work on it with their own team and make changes to the cards. Sometimes they're simple number changes, sometimes they're design tweaks, sometimes they're outright redesigns. So yeah, things are constantly changing. And by the time you all see the set, you know, there might be 200 and 250 cards in the set. But along the way, there may have been a thousand different cards in the set that we tried out in various different forms and numbers and iterations. So yeah, so it, it is a very different perspective when you're finally pencils down and you're looking at a set and it's like, this is the finished product. These are the cards were actually printed. But in your mind, you have this whole history of everything that happened along the way. How do you keep, like, when you're building decks, like, I guess the way it would work in a playtest, right? You guys are given the list and told to build a deck out of, like, just these raw piles of cards? Is that what it looks well, we'll do? Well, we'll do limited playtests, booster draft, and sealed deck just like the real world does them. And we'll use the current state of the file to do that. And then in between playtests, we'll make changes and update and make the set more fun and so on and so forth. But then when it comes to playtesting constructed, most of our focus is on standard constructed because we do kind of mm. have to pick a baseline for where we're targeting things in terms of power level and goals and stuff like that. And for us, that's generally standard, although we do think about all the other formats, modern and commander and stuff. But that tends to be more theory crafting and more, most of our actual playtesting is focused on standard. And so we do what we call our FFL or future future league process where we're testing the cards in standard. And that's when we're building our own constructed decks and really stress testing the cards. And in some cases we're trying to build the most competitive tournament decks we can to look at what the real world metagame might look like and what the strongest Mm. decks we can build are. And in other cases, we're just trying to build decks that really stress test a card and see what it can do and see if there are any broken interactions with it or how powerful that card can be under the right situation. So there's really kind of a lot of different ways to slice the playtesting process, but ultimately it's very iterative. You know, we do some playtesting, we gather some feedback, you know, we recognize some patterns, we make some changes we update the file and then we do it all again. Hmm. Yeah. Really cool. And then like, it just seems to me like when you guys are doing that, you're using 
I guess it's so weird that you have to do this playtesting in the future before the you're building this decks for a standard where the sets before this one haven't even come out yet, let alone, you know, the set that you're currently working on. And wouldn't that, so aren't you building a, like standard decks that are in complete flux? Like, for instance, if you were working on Hour of Devastation, you would have had Kaladesh and Aether Revolt as well. And those sets weren't out when you guys were working on Hour. So how do you even build decks when these cards are all still just kind of being built? Yeah, good right? question. I mean, it is a big challenge, to be perfectly frank. And, you know, that's why we have... A, a bunch of people in, in Wizards R&D who have Pro Tour experience. You know, that's why we have a n- number of the new play designers that we have coming in. Melissa Dottora and Paul Chion are here now. But yeah, it, it is a super big challenge, and I think it's it's one that's easy to underestimate, is building decks in a format that's entirely unexplored, where we don't have a real-world metagame necessarily to base our decks on and to know which removal spells to choose and which counter spells to choose, depending on what threats our opponents might be playing and so on and so forth. It really is a little bit of a Wild West type feel, and so we have to integrate a number of different processes that really stress test the cards and and give us a good idea of what's going on in the format without necessarily having that rock-solid real-world metagame to attack. So it, it is a bit of a different process from trying to win a tournament in the real world when instead of simply building the best deck and trying to get as many match wins as possible, instead you're trying to build decks and play games to determine what cards to actually print and what numbers to print with them. It is a very different set of goals there. That just sounds so headache inducing. (laughs) Just like, (laughs) holy crap. How do you even, I, I can't, I mean, it's so hard to wrap your head around the fact that you're trying to build things that don't even exist with cards that haven't yet existed that are still also in flux because I guess you would have to, work with the card before and then the set coming after and try to make sure that this card doesn't accidentally, when you tweaked it to work with the one before, well, create an infinite... I, I yep, don't there's, there's definitely a, a lot to juggle for sure. But it's fun, right? I mean, we're all magic players. We love building right. decks. We love jamming games and, and learning from that. And so, you know, it's a challenging process, but it really is a fun uh, and productive one. And uh, yeah, it, it can be tough. Like sometimes you'll build the deck and you'll be like, this deck is awesome. I won all my games with it. I was totally kicking butt with it. And you'll take that information of the set lead and they'll be like, okay, yeah, we should nerf this card, this card, and this card. <laughs> and it's like, well, now my deck is gone. Now I got to build a new deck again. And, and that's just part of the job, right? That's how it goes. You just iterate on that. Yeah, if it were easy, it wouldn't be magic. That's right. Fair, fair. Yeah. So we uh, have we talked enough about the Scorpion God sort of obliquely? Yeah, I think so. What's your next uh, card here, Ian, that you here want to talk about? You brought this list. It was wonderful. Unesh, Cryosphinx Sovereign. So this is a legendary creature dash Sphinx with uh, its four and two blue, so six total mana. It's a four-four flying, and it says Sphinx spells you cast cost two less to cast. And then whenever Unesh or another Sphinx enters the battlefield under your control, you reveal the top four cards of your library, an opponent separates those cards into two piles, you put one in your hand and the other in your graveyard. So kind of like a mini factor fiction, if you all are familiar <laughs> with that card, whenever you play a Sphinx. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to imagine why one of the Duke brothers would bring a mini factor fiction on a stick <laughs> that can be repeated Gosh, it doesn't it just seems so out of character for you. <laughs> <laughs> so the cool thing about this card are a couple cool things about this card. So first of all, this is very much the the brainchild of uh, Ken Nagel, 
who is on both the design and development teams for the set. Uh, and he has just oh. for the longest time really wanted a Sphinx commander, the ultimate Sphinx commander that kind of rewards you, not just for being a mono blue deck with a bunch of counter spells and card draw, but for actually playing awesome Sphinxes in your deck. So this card went through a ton of different versions, and actually some of the early versions were both um, blue and white from a color identity standpoint. One of the earliest versions was mono blue, but it had a white activation in it, so you could play with some of your white sphinxes in Commander, like Asperia and things like that. But what we found is, so what we tried with the, the white activation on there was the original version, I think, was like whenever this or another sphinx attacks, or for each sphinx that, that attacks your opponents, you can pay a white mana, and you get to meddling mage a card from that opponent, essentially, as long as Unesh stays in play. Oh, God. So that was like just the <laughs> ultimate griefer card. And, and Ken Nagel is known in, in Wizards R&D for being a griefer-type uh, personality. And so just like being able to attack with a bunch of sphinxes and meddling mage all of your opponent's cards, maybe even meddling mage their commander, depending on how he chose to make the rules and template on it, whether you could do that or not. It was just ultimately a miserable card and destined to not add a lot of fun to Commander. <laughs> that sounds awful. So one of the that things we do, so we do, as I mentioned before, we, you know, we even though we're mostly playtesting um, competitive standard, we do do a lot of research and um, sort of shopping around of different cards and theory crafting for different formats. So I actually took this card. We have an internal Commander League that plays um, on a weekly basis, and sometimes they'll. Um, this is people who work at Wizard. Sometimes they'll play with some of the upcoming cards to kind of test them out in the commander environment. And we had a play test with that version of Unesh that was, you know, attacking and meddling maging many of your opponent's cards at once. And the resounding mm -hmm. feedback was like, this is the most miserable thing in the world. Please don't print this as is. You know, maybe Ken Nagel will love it, but it'll <laughs> just bring a lot of net unfun to the commander sphere and ecosystem. Um, so ultimately decided to pull away from that. And as we kind of just change around the designs and we tried out different things, we eventually decided not to go with that blue and white color identity, both from a set structure standpoint, but also, you know, I worry that over time we kind of uh, overuse the adding extra colors to commanders to, to allow you to play multiple uh, colors in your deck. And this just felt to me like blue uh, sphinxes are such, you know, iconically blue creature type that it just made sense for this to be a mono blue commander. And if it was mono blue, that we could make it a little stronger in exchange for the fact that you had to build a mono blue deck around it. So that's ultimately the direction that we went with that. Yeah. And it's, it's very flavorful. It's not broken per se. I mean, I, I'm sure we'll see plenty of times when this is abused, but I think it's a very fair, fun card. Great. That's what we're going for. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I'm never going to play a Sphinx deck because I'm old school and I like my gins, but I think that this definitely feels like a Sphinx, right? Like it definitely has a feel of riddle of a of a choice. It gives you something to as like as a player, it gives you some more interaction, like it forces your like politics. It gives you interesting political choices to make because you're like, which player will I ask to separate these piles? How are they going to make it into interesting for us? Right. How can we bargain with this? I think that's super fun. I think that could be a lot of potential, but God, just thinking about meddling mage on a stick repeatable just makes me so mad that it's not even, it's like, well, then oh, you can be so glad bad. that that's not the final card we printed. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Let's focus on the cards as printed rather than getting upset. <laughs> I'm still scarred by Leovold, I'm not going to lie. So now you mentioned that you wanted to talk a little bit about deserts. Is uh, 
Is there something you want to you want to mention? Yeah, just sort of desert, deserts as a topic is something that we found. Um, so it was it was in the initial design file that there would be a desert theme and there would be cards that care about deserts. But as we play tested more with the set and we shopped it around and talked to more people, we really found that players were enjoying the deserts a lot and really gravitating toward them. So it's actually something that we chose to kind of blow out during the development process, and we made a bunch of cool new designs that allow you to play with deserts together, some build-around cards for limited, some uncommon deserts that can sacrifice themselves or other deserts to do their effects, so you get multiple uses out of them if you're playing with a lot of of deserts. But the two cards I think are most relevant for Commander here that I'm excited about are Hour of Promise and Ramanap Excavator. So Hour of Promise, this is uh, from the, the cycle of five hour cards that kind of tell the story of what's happening in Hour of Devastation. And Hour of Promise is the story moment where kind of the barrier breaks down surrounding the the city in Amonkhet and the desert's the just kind of the pour they pour in that's right the hecma breaks down i think the locust god destroys it and the desert's just pour in and it's, it's just devastation yeah. everywhere zombies are pouring in from the wastelands outside and things like that and so we kind of top down this card to that moment but we also want it to be a good reward for playing with deserts. So what this says is for four and a green mana, you can search your library up for up to two land cards, and they can be any lands, importantly, not just basics. Put them on the battlefield tapped and then shuffle your library. And then if you control three or more deserts, you also get two two, two black zombie creature tokens. So what's <laughs> super awesome about this is it's kind of a, a what Mark Rosewater calls a lenticular card in that you can kind of view it in a couple different directions. So on surface value, it's a reward for playing with deserts in your deck. If you had a desert on the battlefield already and you cast this and you search for two more deserts, well, you're up two lands and you're also up two zombie tokens. Not too shabby. It's kind of like a mini primeval titan type of a deal. But also in Commander, if you want to, you can just totally forget about the whole da- desert aspect of this card and just use it as like an explosive vegetation variant that can get any lands you want, even non-basic lands. And I'm sure, as we know, there's no shortage of pretty awesome lands that you can fetch up in Commander and do some pretty crazy things mm-hmm. with. So this kind of has that unique utility of not that many cards can actually search up non-basic lands and, and put them right in the battlefield. Yeah, especially when I saw that it said two land cards and not two basic land cards or two forests or whatever, I was like, this, hey, you know what would be fun? Pulling up Gaia's Cradle and, <laughs> like, you know... Cabal coffers, that would be fun. Sounds nice. <laughs> and if you had some deserts also, you could get some zombies there to fuel your Gaia's Cradle. So yeah, a lot of stuff going on there. Was this a deliberate shot at Commander? Yes, it was kind of a double shot at both incentivizing playing with deserts and, and ramp decks in standard, but also that it would work really well for Commander too. And personally, I, I love doing cards like that whenever we can that are kind of serving multiple audiences, as long as we don't get into territory where we're compromising, making it less fun for one audience in order to make it slightly more fun for another. But whenever we can hit on yeah. multiple axes at once, I really love doing that with designs. Yeah, and I will say the Desert Matters deck in Limited for Hour Devastation is super fun. Like, I love everything about that. I think, like, I when I started playing Back in the Dark, uh, Arabian Nights cards were still available. And so I definitely had Camels, Deserts, and Desert Raiders in my deck. I love those guys. I th- I'm sad that we didn't get any invocation camels or deserts. Uh, that would have been like, look, I'm the guy who uh, Ornithopter was targeted at. So getting an invocation desert would have been incredible. But I love this card. I think this card is so cool. Well, this this next card works really well with deserts. And, and there's a whole sub-theme of deserts going to the graveyard, sacrificing themselves. It's pretty cool. I use a bunch of them in the pre-release. Now... This card 
is going to be very useful in a Desert Matters deck where you are throwing deserts into the yard, but also it's useful way Holy... outside of that. Yeah, when when I saw this card, I was like, "This they did it. What is the card, Ian? So this is Remanap Excavator. For two and a green, you get a 2-3 Naga Cleric that says simply, you may play land cards from your graveyard. And yeah. you all may recognize this text from a popular <laughs> artifact called Crucible of Worlds. And this this card I just absolutely love. This was one of the earliest designs in the set from Sean Main's design team. Just fell in love with it as soon as I saw it. It makes so much sense in the set in terms of you can cycle your deserts from your hand, then play them from your graveyard. Now you're up a card. You can um, sacrifice your deserts from play because a lot of the deserts have activated abilities that involve sacrificing themselves or other deserts, and then play them back again and start looping them for effects over and over again. And the Crucible of Worlds effect is just awesome in general. Like Lots of decks can want that. You can play them with cycling lands in, in older formats. In Commander, there's just tons and stuff, tons of stuff to do with Crucible of Worlds, as you all know. And what's really cool about this is, you know, it's an effect that makes sense to put on a creature, but also for Commander purposes, it kind of gives you a second redundant effect of the Crucible of Worlds effect. So it makes it that much more realistic to build your deck around it when now you know you have two options you can find. I was blown away when I saw this card. Yeah. I didn't think that we would ever get a reprint of Crucible, let alone, I mean, yeah, it's on a body, so it dies much easier. But look, I created a Tarmogoyf for a Crucible of Worlds. This is going to be a lot easier to get. And in our format, accessibility matters. And being able to have this effect come back again is just so big for so many players. Because Crucible is one of the best cards there is. And oh man, I was so stoked. And I love the the artwork on it with the snake dude coming out. Um, But why didn't we get a like Evolving Wilds for Deserts or that sort of thing? That's a really good question. I had somebody else ask me this too. I think the answer is that's a card we could have done and we just just chose not to do it or, or didn't do it for whatever reason. We do have plenty of deserts that are, are mana fixing type variants, but specifically the one that's evolving wilds, I think it was just ended up never being suggested and, and didn't really occur as that would be a good addition. In retrospect, I think that's absolutely one we could have done. Although the, the general approach with Deserts was to have them be more cards that would sit on the battlefield for a while and then have a more powerful effect that maybe you spent some mana and did something splashier or bigger, like some of the uncommon Deserts that we mm. have play really well and limited there in, in terms of the impact of the effect. So it just sort of, it didn't quite fit in an obvious way with what we were trying to do with the rest of the Deserts and also a combination of, I think, just nobody ended up suggesting it, but it would have been a good consideration had it been suggested earlier on. Yeah. Like that and the <laughs> the cycling deserts from this set and the dual cycling deserts from the last set are just so amazing, amazing additions to Commander in general. And uh, yeah, I think I speak for a lot of us when I say I'm super glad we got these. Mm-hmm. And I wish we had gotten the other half because I play mostly enemy colored decks. But, you know, we take what we can get and these are amazing. <laughs> uh, I, look, lands are my favorite part of Magic. I love the deserts. I think this is great. Cool. Well, as I look down the rest, it looks like we actually talked about almost all the legends in this set. Yep. There were no green legends, but I guess that makes sense for Desert Land. We can forgive him that because he provided us with the desert. Fair. And then there's also poor Jero down at the bottom. He's great if you play with Planeswalkers. We'll probably make a deck tech about him. Unless, I don't know if there's anything really to say about him. He's great. Yeah, my guess would be this is a card that more goes in the 99s of Commander decks than is a Commander that you build around, since, of course, you want to be able to fetch up a whole bunch of different colored Planeswalkers with him. So, 
Yeah, exactly. So what's your favorite card in the set? <laughs> wow, that's a tough one. You're making me choose here. Wow, that's really tough. I mean, I do like that cycle that we mentioned earlier, the three, the red, black, and blue uncommon choice cards, Abraid, Doomfall, and Supreme Will. Those are mm. definitely among my favorites in terms of how fun they are to play, uh, especially in one-on-one. But I guess I guess I'd have to say Razaketh is probably my personal favorite. Just really splashy and exciting. Going to do some busted stuff for sure. I, yeah. I, I like powerful cards. So that's, that, that's one that appeals to me as a player. Powerful in the sense that it's really open-ended and there's a lot of cool things that you can do with it. Good choice. Mm-hmm. And what's your favorite archetype if you were going to play limited? I like Desert Matters a lot. Um, actually, <laughs> <laughs> actually, toward the end of the process, had um, a pretty sweet Desert Mill deck in limited, which actually worked what? surprisingly well. I think I had Fraying Sanity and a couple creatures that can discard a card to mill your opponent. I forgot the name off the top of my head. And then... Um, uh, Ipnu Rivulet, is that the name of the blue desert, uncommon yes. desert, where you can sacrifice deserts to mill your opponent? And it actually worked out pretty well, just kind of stalling up the ground and kind of turbo milling my opponent out. So that was pretty awesome. That sounds awesome. <laughs> that sounds so much fun. That's great. Cool. Well, this has been a fantastic conversation, and thank you so much for sharing all these amazing stories and also about the the play design team, which I'm just so curious to see what you guys actually end up coming up with. And not a lot of people realize this. Uh, actually, all of our listeners do, but I was saying that for your benefit. We actually created a playmat that is Amonkhet-inspired, and it has a Bolas-themed pyramid on it. And that playmat, as well as our now standard black one, is for sale at our website. It's in very limited numbers. We're never going to reprint the Amonkhet playmat. And uh, it actually has a tribute to Vegas on, uh, in the middle of it. So... To our listeners, and of course to you, Ian, I know that now you have a head start. You have a one-week head start. You should go up to our website, go to our products, and you can order it from there. Sounds super cool. And if you play your cards right, Ian, pun intended, <laughs> then maybe you'll get a playmat. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> hey, Ian, thanks for being a really good sport and coming on the show. Yeah, we genuinely appreciate this. Thanks for having me. It's been great. How can people reach you if they have additional questions such as, you know, making standard more accessible by pushing the power level down to uncommon? If they wanted to ask that question, how could they reach you? So best way would be on Twitter at MTG underscore Ian Duke, all one word. And yeah, just tweet at me there and hopefully I'll get back to you. I'm, I have to say though, I'm notoriously bad at keeping up with social media. So if I don't respond to your question right away, it doesn't mean you're not awesome and that you didn't have an awesome question. Just might take me a little bit to get back to you. Thanks to everybody else for hanging out with us this long. Without your support, this episode would not have happened. So if you want to support the podcast, give us a five-star rating on iTunes or wherever it is you get your podcast from. And if you want to financially support our podcast, head on over to patreon.com slash commander and MTG. And if you donate $10 or more per episode, come join the patron chat group we host over on Facebook. Patrons over there get all sorts of sneak previews, like they knew Ian was coming on, I believe, and they often get to contribute to the show planning by asking questions and stuff. But we're incredibly grateful to all of our patrons, folks exactly like Steve Steve Bocher, J.R. Casey, and Tonda Fuller. Thank you so much for donating to the show. 
You can reach us by going to our website, commander at mtg.com. Our email is cast at commander at mtg.com. You can find us on all the social media by searching for commander at mtg podcast. Individually on Twitter, I'm at Ketjack. And I'm Girapuri Gears, which is... Uh, it's Girapuri Gears. Yes. And we'll include that in the, the show notes as usual. And Sean is at Compain26. Thank you again, Ian. This has been awesome. We got to hear all sorts of development secrets, actually. We've never heard some of these things before. It's awesome. Yeah, no, that was great. Yeah, it's been a great time. Thanks so much for having me. Really enjoyed myself, and it's been great chatting with you. And uh, to all of you out there, may you survive the hour of devastation in one piece. Whatever you do, don't wrap it around your neck tightly. I'll be careful about that. I do want to survive this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) I I, I don't even want to try to explain that to Trick. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That'd be some big trouble. It'll be fine. Nobody will know the difference. I'd come back even stronger than before. (laughs) Assuming I'm not a 4-4 already. (laughs)